And that, my friends, is what we call a throwback. Throwing it back. Because in the inception of this show, at the very beginning, we used to have Duncan Lorimer's music lead us into the episode. Every episode, I would use his music. We've since transitioned into using some more upbeat, hip-hoppy stuff. Not so much the folk music, but we gotta throw it back. We gotta throw it back because... You know, I like that music, and, I, and and it, you know, I really enjoy to listen to it. But it doesn't incite in me, like, the energy that I need to be able to scream into a microphone. So that's why we've, you know, transitioned away. But it's amazing, you know. And Duncan Lorimer just released a new album. I encourage you to go check it out. We'll put the link below. But that's not the point. The point is, we're talking about science. This is episode 49 of the State of the Universe. Now, let me ask you a question. You might be listening right now. Were you listening at the beginning? Were you? I mean, honestly, were you? You probably were. Did you think we'd make it to episode 49? Did you? Did you think? Did you say, man, that Brendan kid, he's going to make it to episode 49? Because I bet you didn't. And maybe that, like me, I don't know. I kind of have this personality where I always think everyone's doubting me. And it's to the point where it's at times not healthy. Like, at times where I, I honestly, like, I believe that everyone is against me and no one believes that I can succeed. And that's just been ingrained in me forever, as long as I can remember. And I, I don't know why it's there, but it's there. And so, did you think we didn't make it to episode 49? You didn't. But we're here. We're here now. And we're going to keep going. So, you might be wondering, who's this Duncan Lorimer guy? Who is he? Well, you ever hear of a fast radio burst? It's one of the most, we'll say, hot topics in the field of astronomy and astrophysics today because there's such a wealth of information about them in terms of observational information but we have no idea what causes them and duncan lorimer and his group were responsible for discovering the first fast radio burst so we talked to him about that he is currently a professor of physics at west virginia university wvu and he also serves as the associate dean for external research development at that same university he's been in this field in the world of radio astronomy for a very long time and so we talk about you know the progression from from the discovery of pulsars all the way up through the discovery of fast radio bursts. what was it like to discover this new object and have no one believe you and have everyone think that it was a fluke and that you were doing something wrong or it was the, it was the equipment messing up and then to finally be vindicated today with you know tons of frb discoveries and now duncan Lorimer dropped some some knowledge on some some you know information that hasn't been released very publicly yet and you'll have to listen to find out what it is but i'll tell you what we're entering a new new phase of fast radio burst research so you'll find out about that we also talk about music you know academia is a culture where there's no such thing as a work-life balance and and i say that because you know there's very much a pressure on everyone within the confines of academia to work their ass off and when i say work their ass off i mean literally devote their life to it like devote their whole life to it to not do anything else there's a pressure to do that now i'm not saying you have to abide by that pressure i'm not saying everyone puts that pressure on you but i'm saying it's like ingrained into the academic culture specifically in the physical sciences duncan's a musician i make this show i do a lot of outreach so we talk how do we, how do you balance that how do you how do you get rid of that stigma how do you fight it how do you say no 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 i'm not going to spend 120 hours a week 
doing research. I'm, I'm going to do the research. I'm going to put in the work. I'm going to be efficient, but I'm also going to live my life outside of it. You know, how do you make that call? And, and how do you do it in a way such that you can still build a career? That's an important question. So we talk about that. We talk about music. And then we also talk at length about getting kids involved in science. How do you get kids in rural West Virginia and rural Pennsylvania who grow up with no background in science, how do you get them involved? How can you do it? It's a tough, tough thing to do, okay? And so with that being said, people, I hope that you enjoy this episode, episode 49, the best episode 49 I've ever made, for sure, definitely, you know, and maybe the best I'll ever make. Follow the show on you. I've been noticing something. I've been noticing something. You guys have been leaving iTunes ratings and reviews and subscribing on YouTube. Therefore, when I tell you every episode to subscribe on YouTube and leave a five-star review, you've been listening. And what does that mean? Does that mean I own you? No, it doesn't mean that. You want to know why? Because that's not how humanity does things anymore. We're over that, except for certain places in Libya. But we're going to fight that, and we're going to... That's not the point. Moving on, okay? Moving on. Leave a rating. Leave a review. And listen, these shows, you have to understand something. I make these shows... I, I talked to Duncan Lorem about this at the beginning of the episode. To make this show, probably episodes 1 through 20, I would bring my kitchen table into my one-bedroom, in my one-bedroom apartment. I would set that shit up. I would put a microphone on it, and we would record We've transitioned. Now I have my own little space. I have video. I have good microphones. I have, you know, like a, a legitimate studio area devoted to this. So we're moving up. And as we move up, guess what? Cost goes up. And how do we how do we handle cost? You know how we handle cost? By you supporting the show. So please do that. Patreon.com slash the state of the universe or paypal.me slash Drackler. Both of those links are on my website, thestateoftheuniverse.com. We need contributions in order to continue producing the high-quality content that we produce. So, contribute. Or, if you're the type of person who can't contribute, well, that's okay too. Because you know what? It's free. It'll always be free. And I appreciate you guys just tuning in. Because, you know, even if, if you can't give me $5, I don't care. As long as you hit the five-star button and you hit the like and the subscribe button, that's all I give a shit about. I mean, at the end of the day, whatever. So I appreciate you guys. And we'll see you next week for some new episodes. Okay, with that being said, then we can uh, we can kick it off. Um, Duncan Lorimer, Dr. Duncan Lorimer, it is great to see you again it's great to have you back on the on the show you're my second sorry you're not the first you're my second ever repeat guest <laughs> thank you it's great to be back and in vision as well as sound this time yes we're, mo we're moving up you know we're constantly moving. i got a beautiful picture behind me now you know mm -hmm. i got a better microphone i got i actually have a camera so that's you know we're, we're getting there. We're slowly getting there. And along nice. with all of that comes thousands of new viewers from the last time we talked. Okay. Cool. And so I would love to just piggyback on our last conversation, but I fear that we'll lose most people. Okay. Okay. So I think yeah. a good starting point would be FRBs in general. You know, 
many people might know what an FRB is, but many people might not know that that the very beginnings of FRB research happened with you. In fact, the first FRB ever discovered is named the Lorimer burst after you. Right. And so, That's right. Can you can you take us through the the your journey of discovering the first FRB? How it happened? How you knew there was something interesting here? Mm -hmm. Sure. And that whole process. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm sitting here in Morgantown, West Virginia. Um, and let's see, in 2006, that's when I moved here uh, to begin uh, a tenure track position as an assistant professor in the physics and astronomy department. And as all uh, assistant professors need to do, they need to start getting started on research as soon as they can. So um, I had a plan for that and it involved just using data that was already in existence uh, rather than going out and applying for telescope time and, and so on and waiting. So we got some uh, data from the Parkes Radio Telescope, and so that's a dish in New South Wales, Australia, which is famous for bringing back pictures of the, the moon landings 50 years ago, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, anyway, I have a long history with that telescope as well. I, I'd used it as a PhD student back in the day, and the data that I, I gathered uh, together for this initial experiment were taken in the beginning of the 2000s. Um, so they were already six years old. Um, and in my history is that I've, I study pulsars. Uh, that's how I got into astronomy. And pulsars are rapidly spinning neutron stars. Um, they emit a pulse of radiation. Or they emit, they're emitting radiation continuously, but we see them as pulses as, as the beam um, from their magnetic pole streams past our line of sight. And so I've spent a lot of years studying these things and in particular looking for them. And one of the things that we got really excited about back then were that there were some pulsars that occasionally would emit a really bright individual pulse, so bright that they could be seen from well beyond the Milky Way. And so the idea of this little experiment was to look for pulsars um, beyond the Milky Way. And so we, we used some data that uh, Parks had looked at the Magellanic Clouds these satellite galaxies of the Milky Way, and um, there were dozens and dozens of hours of data of just sort of staring at the galaxies and just moving the telescope to cover the the whole extent of those. Um, so we realized that the previous researchers had not searched for individual pulses. They just searched for continuous uh, periodic signals that could be very faint, but they weren't that, that search process wasn't very sensitive to individual bursts. Now, at the time, when you say searched, were you doing like a physical search through the data, or did you have an algorithm that would try to identify pulses? <clears throat> so this is uh, an al computer algorithm that um, goes through the data, um, and so normally what happens is that uh, when we're looking for periodic sources we take a, a stretch of data for the set the observations were in this case were over two hours long um and so we would take the whole stretch of data and we pass it through this mathematical operation um called a fourier transform mm -hmm. that is very sensitive to periodic signals um and it it then basically gives you a list of what it thinks are the most significant signals in the data right so it's all uh, automated, which is yeah. nice. It's crazy to listen to uh, like Jocelyn Bell or someone who did radio astronomy in the early days to talk about their experience with this sort of thing. Because a lot of different. the... What was that? 
completely different. Yeah. Yes, a right. lot of their their work was literally done by looking at these like strip chart papers, which right. I had the opportunity to use when I was in Green Bank a few years mm -hmm. ago. Yeah, to use one of those old classical strip chart. That's right. Yeah, the little pen like you know up and down on the paper as it pulls right. out of the machine. Yeah, but okay, much more, much 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 more uh, high tech these days. So well, so. yeah, but just just different. I mean, so it's you, but you can think of the, the the stream of data really as a digital version of that pen chart, mm -hmm. um, and so. We, we had developed algorithms to look for individual pulses. And so these pulses would be so bright that if you just plotted them on the screen, you would be able to see them uh, with your unaided eye. But there's so much data to go through that it's better to put it through an algorithm right. so that you, know, you don't catch human uh, fatigue, mm -hmm. uh, which can creep in. Um, so we got started on that and it was there was a lot of data to look through but it was even back then you know over a decade ago the, the computational power that we had available was such that you could do it on a desktop computer um, so we didn't need much to get started um, and we had an undergraduate who wanted to work with us so when i say we i'm talking about myself and my wife uh, maura mclaughlin who's also been on the show mm -hmm. Uh, so she and I came to WVU at the same time, and she's also in, in the department here. Anyway, our student, David Narkovic, um, was uh, getting into the, the data, and um, a couple of months into this, after, after just looking through and making these diagnostic outputs of candidates, things that might be bright pulses, he found something that was so bright that it literally just leapt off the page at you, and you, you could not ignore it. Mm -hmm. uh, it, was, it was like a hundred times or more greater than just the random hiss that's present in the in the signal from the telescope itself. So that was the beginnings of this uh, this thing. It was just this insanely bright individual event, and it took us a long time to to figure out what they were. And you know, fast forward to today. It's uh, it's the start of, of a whole new research field uh, of which we're still you know actively engaged in and trying to figure out what these what could cause these things. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, and hopefully I'm not making this up. It's just completely off the cuff. I remember reading a paper, or at least I think I remember reading a paper. I think like something like ninety percent of human memories are are faulty in some way. But anyway, I'm pretty sure this one's not <laughs> faulty. I think I remember reading a paper that analyzed the original data set you used, as well as some of the other parks data, and yes. they, they ran it through um, machine learning algorithms and, and identified even more potential FRBs yeah. in that data. I know. Uh, that it's, you know it's very interesting what, what happened. Um, so we, we, we had just one signal that we, we could find in our original analysis of the data, and that presented a lot of problems, you know. You only have one of them. Is it mm -hmm. real? Is it just a, an artifact of the, the observing system? Um, and we, you know, we could talk about that at length, and I think we did a bit last time. But um, what they found recently is that um, they went back with more sophisticated algorithms. I don't, don't necessarily know that they were even machine learning. They were, it was just a better algorithm that mm -hmm. was um, just more sensitive at finding these, these peaks. And it found one more source in the same data set. So... I was when I saw that paper, I was just like slapping my forehead. You know, if yeah. if we'd only we 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 kind of barely missed it. If we mm -hmm. go if we look back at our own results, you can see it there, but it's faint. Our algorithm just wasn't didn't write give it the prominence that it deserved. So in um, in those initial days, was there a lot of doubt? 
Oh, yeah, a tremendous amount. And do, um, do you think you know, that's, if you had found that second one, then we would maybe be further along in our research of FRBs? I, you know, it's easy to say now, um, but I, be- I strongly believe it would have been totally different. Hmm. For instance, um, we would have uh, we, we would have been able to get the – it took us a long time to get the paper published, mm-hmm. for one thing. Um, but more importantly, um, when we after we got the paper published, there was a lot of doubts in the community because we had only one source. Had we had even two, um, that would have made the case a lot uh, more compelling. Uh, it's, it's hard to believe, perhaps people listening to this, you know, what the difference between one and two is. But, you know, when you're looking for rare astronomical events, having two of them is is not is is so much better than just just one. Um, in any case, it would have been would have been able to um, give us a lot more. Um, what's the word? Uh, just a more credence when we were presenting mm-hmm. our argument to funding agencies, because what we were trying to do back you know, about eight eight or nine years ago was to generate funding to to build um, dedicated instruments to look for these system these uh, these bursts. And uh, we were unsuccessful in, in just getting that getting the funding. Um, so it kind of set us back, you know, in our own research group. I think had we got that funding uh, and been able to do the experiment that we um, we proposed, you know, we would have been a lot further along, I believe. Um, but, but it's it's just one of those interesting yeah, what historical. Was the, what, what was the experiment that you proposed? And like, is that something that's being done today? Is that something mm-hmm. you want to do in the future? Um, yeah. So the, what we pro- were proposing to do back then um, at Green Bank, the Green Bank Observatory in, in, mm-hmm. in, here in West Virginia, there's not only the big 100 meter dish uh, and the, the the dish that you were talking about with the, with the pen chart recorder. There are a whole bunch of other um, dishes, and, and in particular, there are three um, that sit along a line that form uh, what's known as a radio interferometer mm-hmm. to produce high-resolution pictures of the radio sky. That Those three telescopes, are they're, they've been mothballed for many years. They were actually the prototype of the Very Large Array in New Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and, any, and, and they found uh, – they, they made some amazing discoveries. And for instance, they found um, – they pinpointed the emission, the radio emission around the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way. So cool stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so these 85-foot telescopes, what we were proposing to do was simply retrofit them with receivers. They couldn't point uh, anywhere on the sky. They were just looking straight up. Um, mm-hmm. But what we, we, were, we could move them a little bit. So we were just going to have them move, looking in slightly different positions and just watch the sky as it drifted overhead. Mm. And they would have been sufficient, uh, I, I think, to... To detect, you know, a few dozen of those over the course of a few years, um, you, you know, given what we now know about about these these sources. So, yeah, that that was that was the experiment. But now that you know those uh, um, type of experiments have been greatly superseded by the the latest happenings. Uh, for in, for instance, Chime, and I don't right. I don't know how much yep. you guys have been talking about that on the show, but. We talked about Canadian. it a little bit, but we never talked about it in depth. So this is this right. is actually where we're taking the conversation next. Okay. So yeah, this is so, good. Yeah. So for for so the, the people who don't know, Chime in I think it was January of this year announced that they had found thirteen new FRBs, right? Right. So can you speak to a little bit like what what is Chime? What's special about Chime, mm-hmm. et cetera? 
Yeah, so first of all, what does it stand for? Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment. That's the algorithm, mm -hmm. the acronym. Um, and it's, um, <coughs> it's also it's a, it's a set of cylindrical dishes um, that is in uh, British Columbia um, outside of, um, you know, a few hours drive from Vancouver uh, at a place called Penticton. There's also a, a famous radio observatory there. Um, and it's dedicated to, to map um, the emission that the universe gives uh, in hydrogen uh, that's mm -hmm. been redshifted down to the 400 to 800 megahertz band from the uh, expanding universe. And so that's an ongoing experiment. It, it, so it, it had been proposed probably about the same time as um, the FRBs were being discovered, actually. It was being, it was being conceived back yeah. then mm -hmm. as a hydrogen experiment. Uh, really cool idea. And so it's just these cylinders that point up at the sky. Right. There are many uh, receivers along the axes of the cylinders, uh, and they are able to, when they're combined uh, in a supercomputer, the signals from those, you can form um, beams on the sky mm -hmm. um, that literally create, uh, I think it's about a thousand different um, beams uh, pointing to different positions on the sky. So it gives this telescope an enormous field of view. Um, and the people that were involved in that, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of uh, really uh, key uh, astronomers, Vicky Caspi and Ingrid Stairs, uh, who are pre uh, eminent uh, pulsar astronomers in Canada. They realized that that would be a really good uh, FRB finding machine as well. It has the, the large field of view to guarantee uh, more FRBs per unit time because most telescopes up until that point, including the Parkes one, they had a relatively small field of view, just right. about a, you know, the size of the full moon mm -hmm. at best. This was um, was much much greater than that. So you know that that initial publication that you just men mentioned with thirteen FRBs was after they first turned on the experiment last summer. Um, and found found those relatively quickly. And it, uh, that wasn't even an official observing run, right? That was like a, a demo, a test. That's right, yeah. It was in, still in engineering time. So the telescope wasn't fully sensitive um, and modes hadn't been fully worked out, yet they found these really easily. Um, I mean, I say easily, but that, that was the result of many years of development. Right. Um, and there's, there's a big team um, called Chime FRB that... Um, is is behind that and then and since then um that i've heard rumors that there are several hundred of these now that they have that they're that they have in their sample and, and possibly up, upwards of a thousand several a thousand <laughs> frb detections right yeah. wow so what how do you how did you react in you know maybe you knew about them before everyone else knew about them in january 2019 but how did you react when you realize astronomy has this magnificent way of making things seem not so rare anymore. So like in the history of exoplanets, right? It's, it's this mm -hmm. big, amazing thing when we find one and then we find two and then, mm -hmm. wow, we found a dozen. Wow. Maybe they're not as rare as we thought. And now, you know, we have 4,000 and we're starting to realize, wow, these things are really common actually, you know, and the same thing with binary black holes, the same thing happens with galaxies, even mm -hmm. from, you know, the initial Island universes to, there's billions of galaxies, you know? Right. How do you react? Like, what is your own personal timeline from thinking, oh, wow, one FRB, this thing, 
I know it's not an anomaly. I know it's a real thing, but it's got to be a rare thing. I don't know if you were mm-hmm. thinking this. I'm putting words in your mouth. And now to thinking, oh, my God, there's thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really gratifying to see, actually, because even though we, we started with one, we could we could quickly extrapolate based on the amount of time that we'd spent looking for that one and the amount of area that we covered, how many there needs to be going off on the sky per day. Mm-hmm. And we already came came to the conclusion that hundreds of them would be going off um, over the sky at a given day. Right. So that was that was something that we, you know, we were really forced to conclude, even even though we only observed one. It was just so hard to find. And so now, being having the technology to to see that uh, more of that sky uh, and and having that confirmed is really great. You know, it's uh, you know we're we're now able to study them as a population. And so what these thousand or more of them as, as they will be released but they'll just be able to map um just looking at their dis- even their distribution on the sky um will will be fascinating and you know that the, the the difference in brightness uh among the sample will be able to to firmly place those as a cosmology cosmological population in the same way that astronomers have studied quasars and gamma ray bursts for decades yeah now how did your like you know, you talk about the population that must exist. How does that help people like you determine what these things must be, right? Because there's certain things that we don't expect to be incredibly rare in the universe, and we don't expect to see a lot of. So, so how do you 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 bridge that gap between, you know, seeing these FRBs and, you know, the the common idea I think is that these are high energy phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. That something high energy is happening, but then on the other hand, we're seeing a ton of them. So is the conclusion maybe that there's actually a ton of high energy phenomenon going on in the universe or that maybe there's a different um, engine at play here? Well, I mean, somewhere in the universe, a star explodes once every second, uh-huh. something like there's a supernova explosion goes off. That's right. the, um, the essential number that astronomers have. And so that, that kind of sets the limit in some ways, upon energetic events. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you find a population that's, you know, that's exceeding that rate, then it's it's quite hard to explain, um, based on you know our current knowledge of the universe. And so, we are orders of magnitude below that okay. still. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like one every ten minutes, something like that. So, you don't you you don't know the me- necessarily know the mechanism. Um, right. You know, you know, it's a radio phenomenon. As you, and in, for some of them now, we've been able to measure the, the redshift and infer the distance, mm-hmm. measure measure the distance directly, and so we're able to to infer the amount of energy released. So we can come up with models um, involving source populations whose rates um, over the whole cosmos we can understand from other observations. You know, for instance, from LIGO that the, the the experiment that you're involved in, where, where um, you're observing neutron star in spirals, mm-hmm. that now places a constraint on the neutron star in spiral rate. Right. Uh, and if they're coming from those, these fast radio bursts are coming from those, they mustn't exceed that rate. And so you can study them as a population. You can you can understand their rate better and then place them in context of, of um, what you understand about stellar populations in the universe. 
so that's assuming that they're a stellar phenomenon. There's something to do with stars. Right. Um, and they, some of them may end up not being, but <clears throat> I, I think it's a, it's a safer bet to start there. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. And so you, you mentioned it, cause if it isn't stars, I mean, then we have a, a real big problem on our hands and what the hell yeah, could it be? Right, right. So something non-stellar, um, so, um, cosmic strings interacting yeah. with one another. Weir- weirder, um, weirder things, you know. Things, more, stuff like you know, that, yeah. things, yeah. Yeah. Um, how gratifying would it be for you if somehow this was connected to, like, the dark energy, dark matter understanding? And then, oh, man, that, that'd be nice. I'm not saying yeah. it is in any way, but I'm right, saying, right, man, right. What, if, what if we get there and we're like, whoa, <laughs> the, FRBs are interacting dark matter particles. Or No, no, no. Of course I'm not yeah. saying that, but but that would be, like, that would be... A gratifying thing sure right? I mean, whatever happens with them at this point i f- i just feel honored to have been involved in the in the, the story um right. so yeah. far and yeah it's been fascinating to to follow it and be and be involved in not only the discovery but the early early phase of its history so yes. yeah it's they, they still have a lot to tell us a lot of surprises will be coming yeah so you mentioned redshift right you mentioned mm-hmm. that we can calculate redshifts with these things so yeah. and in we in that we can infer some distance measurements. How right. far away are these things? Are they in our galaxy? Are they extragalactic? <clears throat> so they are firmly extragalactic. Um, so they are at a redshift um, of 0.2. Um, so just just to give, bring your readers up to up to speed, we define the redshift uh, when astronomers talk about it in a cosmological sense. It's a dimensionless number, so it has no units. Um, redshift of zero means our galaxy. Uh, higher redshifts mean things well beyond our galaxy. Mm-hmm. And so it's the uh, the fractional change in the wavelength. So the observed wavelength minus the emitted wavelength divided by the emitted wavelength. So the, the implication is that these sources are so far away that the by the time, so let's say they start over here and the Earth's down here and the, the source travels down here. By the time uh, the pulse actually reaches the Earth, the universe has expanded, uh, and the wavelength of, of these uh, these uh, radio signals has expanded as well. And so you can uh, measure that fractional expansion, and from uh, what we know about the expanding universe, you can map that to the distance. Uh, so you come to the conclusion that these are billions of light years away. Yeah, so a question that I will undoubtedly get, and I can see it coming, um, and I would like for you to just clarify it, is that if we're detecting FRBs extragalactically, okay, and we understand that the population of FRBs happening in the sky at any given time should be pretty high, why are we not seeing FRBs in our own galaxy? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the reason is mainly because in a given galaxy – um, FRBs are actually quite rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever is causing them uh, is not going off terribly often. Um, so as you look out to distances of billions of light years, then you start to encompass uh, just so many galaxies um, that you become overwhelmingly likely to, to see events in, a, in any given direction once, you, once you're able to sample a, a decent enough volume. So that's that's the argument. So in our Milky Way, one might go off tomorrow, um, but they're probably even much rarer than uh, 
we kind of already hinted at this right. earlier on, that they're much rarer than supernovae, which go off in our galaxy once every uh, 100 years or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we, it may happen, um, yeah. but uh, it's, it's, it's unlikely just for that reason. Yeah, and then it's compounded with the unlikeliness of actually being able to have our telescopes pointed at the right spot at the right time. Yeah, right? So, that's, that's also a problem. Yeah. Yes. Does the vastness of space ever boggle you? still after all these years in the field because i was sitting at my desk the other day just sort of thinking about how many galaxies there are just mm -hmm. looking out the window and i like had a near panic attack just like thinking about the vastness of it like oh my god right we're right so tiny we're like little little dots there's billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in every one of them and i don't even know if those words carry enough weight to describe the magnitude and it mm -hmm. just freaks me out Anytime I think about it. Yeah, I mean, all the time for me, too. I, um, you know, as a professional astronomer, we're kind of used to doing calculations and we choose units where where these large numbers are kind of buried. Mm -hmm. And so we, just, so we just, you know, talk about billions of light years kind of off the cuff. Um, yeah. But, you know, every now and again, I, you know, and particularly when I step away from the computer screen and, like you said, look up at the sky, you are basically just, um, drawn back to that moment when you, as a little kid you were just sort of I just re distinctly remember just sitting on my bed uh, looking out the window and just thinking about infinity yeah. <laughs> you know and why are we here you know what is what is our world what is its place in the world and you know how far how far are we from the nearest stars and yeah know, I, I didn't even know about the galaxy at that point exactly so yeah everyone gets a different feeling when they think like that and I think everyone in our field does think like that sometimes. I think it's almost mm -hmm. a, a requirement. That's what got you to the dance after all is sort of right. thoughts like that. But I, everyone gets different feelings. For some reason, mine invokes anxiety. Like for some reason, when I think about that, the thing that invokes in my, my brain is not wonderment or awe. It's always like, holy shit, this is crazy. <laughs> this is insane that I'm here right now. I don't know. That's my experience. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So... Back to FRBs, something fantastic happened with the most recent Chime announcement, and it wasn't just that they found 13 new FRBs. I don't even know what the number's at right now. I'm not sure what the number of FRBs is at. Um, sort of the public catalogs, it's it's closing on 100, I, I believe. Yeah. Okay, and I think that there's only two repeating FRBs that we found, unless that has changed as well. There's a few, there's a few more. <laughs> okay, is Chime like actively announcing? Maybe my not yet. I mean, so so what you know those those thousand that I alluded to earlier on that was just you know what I'd heard from some Chinese whispers, uh, talking to other astronomers. I've also heard that they found, and it's it's not that secret. You know, it's been mentioned at meetings. It just hasn't been um, published uh, anywhere right. yet. Um, so I've I've heard that there are about half a dozen. Uh, repeating FRBs in, in their sample hmm. um, from Chime. Yeah, that is is fascinating. But that changes the whole game in my mind. Like, the, when, when the second repeating FRB was announced, that, that sort of switched things up for me. Because mm -hmm. I had always thought about these two classes of objects as different. You have an FRB with a single pulse. You have a repeating FRB with multiple pulses. And... Maybe, maybe they are two distinct classes, and we can talk about that in a minute. 
But first, mm-hmm. I want to talk about just the repeating nature of FRBs themselves, because a lot of people I see, a lot of people get this confused. So can you describe, like, what does it mean for an FRB to repeat? Is it like a pulsar? Is it periodic? Is it chaotic? Et cetera. Right. Okay. So for an FRB to repeat, it just means that since the, since the initial discovery, um, many, but not all FRBs are followed up in a very random way by astronomers if they've just got bits of telescope time. They go, oh, I'm just going to point my telescope towards that one again and just see what's happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's these little tiny little windows around the, these these locations on the sky where we've reobserved them. In some cases, that could be dozens of hours or a few hours. In some cases, it could be hundreds of hours uh, literally just spent on that spot. Uh, and so these, these repetitions are just additional pulses that come through and they have the same basic signature uh, as the original one we haven't talked about this on the show today but they, they show this dispersion yep. uh, characteristic where the pulse arrives at the highest frequencies earlier and then gets delayed across the band and so they, they show that signature which you know um, basically convinces us that it's the same object it's from the same object but mm-hmm. they um they don't seem to come at any predictable time. It's, it's, it's pretty much random. There doesn't seem to be any periodicity involved in that. Um, so far, at least, there's been a lot of, for, from the original repeating source, there have been hundreds of follow-up pulses detected at this point, some of them within timescales of a few hours, um, enough that if it were a pulsar, a, a regular pulsar as we know them, we would have seen that periodicity, even from just a few pulses. So they seem to be... Just random. Do we have the angular resolution? And maybe that's not even the correct radio astronomy term, but do we have enough resolution to determine whether or not it is one object making multiple pulses or if it's some grouping of objects and they're all seemingly pulsing at one time? That is interesting. So, yeah, from up for a pulsar, we, um, from the width of the pulses, and if you multiply that time by the speed of light, then you get an idea of the size of the emitting region mm-hmm. that is that, causing them. And those are typically um, kilometers in scale or less in some cases, down to the, the, the narrowest pulse is like the size, physically the size of a beach ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, this, is, this is good for me to answer a question real quick. I get questions all the time. Why can we detect pulsars with radio telescopes and we don't have a picture of one? And it's because they're like 10 kilometers in width, right, right. In, in diameter, and they're thousands of light years away. Right. So taking a yeah. picture is really damn hard. Okay, sorry, Duncan Lorman. Yeah, continue. that's all right. <laughs> so these, these emitting regions, we see them on pulsars, you know, as the beam sweeps past our line of sight. Mm-hmm. Within that beam, there may be what we call sub, several different sub-pulses, um, and let's say, for the sake of argument, that an FRB is just doing one of these. It's, it's just a, it's, it's the pulsar that every few years decides, decides for whatever reason to, to spew out a, a bright pulse. Mm-hmm. They could be coming from different regions in, in that um, overall shape width of a few kilometers. Right. Um, and that would, that would make it harder for us to discern the periodicity. Um, but they would have to be... Um, because of the, the overall duration of the pulse, they would they, it would be harder to separate them more much more than that. I see. And now it it's possible it's possible that you do have a lot of high energy type phenomena like pulsars. Mm-hmm. It's possible that you do have pulsars grouped into one location, right? Because we do see populations. 
I'm thinking of like, you know, if you think about the the centers of globular clusters, right? These objects, yep. they can have large groupings of, of dense objects. And so, yes. you know, because we don't have the angular resolution to, to determine whether this is one object or a group of objects, um, it, it's tough because we can feasibly come up with a way to develop a grouping of objects like a pulsar. And if a pulsar mm -hmm. is responsible or a neutron star is responsible for an FRB, then it's hard to dis discern between the two, um, in, in my mind anyway. Yes. What, I mean, what you, as you've been talking there, it's sort of, uh, it's put forward an interesting model. Uh, <laughs> um, you may have stumbled across something. Um, in a globular cluster mm -hmm. where these, the central core is less than a parsec across yeah. uh, and the stars are packed into that region, we can, um, through long-term pulsar observations, we can resolve the positions of individual pulsars. So let's say that the, the telescope's field of view is this circle that I'm drawing here. We can, over time, we can actually pinpoint the pulsars to well within that field of view uh, and map them out on the cluster. Mm -hmm. But if you were just blindly going along and look and pointing at that cluster and you just saw individual pulses from it, they would all look like they were coming from the same place, actually. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one model for one brand new model for FRBs is they're coming from energetic pulsars and globular clusters. By brand new model, do you mean <laughs> someone else already proposed it or do you mean I just came up with it? You just came up with it. Ah, look at that. Here, I have, an, I have another one. I have another FRB thing. This is my second FRB thing that I've, ne I've never studied FRBs. I just come up with things. Okay, that's what a scientist does. And then I pass them to people who know what they're talking about. Um. Could you feasibly, this might be too technical for the podcast listeners, but it's okay. Could you feasibly have a, 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 the formation of a black hole and gravitationally redshift a gamma ray to a radio wave? And that's what you're seeing. You're seeing like the, the final emission of a gamma ray burst, but it's being redshifted, gravitationally redshifted. It's like the last photon that gets out uh -huh. and it's gravitationally redshifted to a radio wave. I don't know. Possibly. possibly. I mean, the, these um, one th one thing that's good for people to, to be aware of is whatever these sources are, they might not even know that they're emitting the radio waves. I mean, so there's there's the there's the whole redshift question, mm -hmm. uh, which is one thing. But let's just say that they're a, they're part of a whole spectrum of radiation that the star is emitting. Like so, so pulsars that emit most of their energy in gamma rays, they mm -hmm. barely notice that they're emitting anything in radio. Right. And we're, and we're, yeah, there are people here on the earth that are building their careers around this mm -hmm. <laughs> and the stars don't even know they're doing it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, the, whatever the sources of FRBs, uh, turns out to be, it could be similar to that. It could be a high, high energy phenomenon where we're just seeing a low energy piece. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk, we're going to transition into multi-messenger astrophysics here in a minute and okay. we can explore that idea. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about repeating FRBs first because, you know, one of the things, that is apparent to me based off of what you just said is that, you know, these FRBs, they might, they do, they do not sort of blink, if you will, with the periodicity. Uh, they can be quite chaotic. I don't want to use the word chaotic because I know some people in the field of chaos listen to this and I know that they hate when I use the word chaotic. So we'll see. So we'll say unpredictable. Um, okay. there's maybe an unpredictable nature to their, to the emission. Is it possible that every FRB is a repeating FRB and just we haven't stared at it long enough to see it blink? it's possible there would have to be like a very broad spectrum of time scales so so for some of them like the um the original Lorimer burst 
um, was so bright. You know, it's up, the original pulse was up here. We've observed mm -hmm. it for hours and hours at this point, hundreds and hundreds of hours. We would have been able to see things way down in the close to the noise level. Um, for any normal distribution of pulses um, that, for instance, we, we're seeing for the for the those FRBs that do repeat, I think we would have seen those repeat pulses had they been there. Hmm. So what I'm trying to say is, yes, they could be repeating, but they would have to have a diff different distribution in their rep repetition um, rate than the ones that we're seeing. So they kind of by nature, they almost become another class of repeating FRB. So I, I, I guess I feel it's hard to, to reconcile what we've got as one population right now. I see. So, so it is likely that we're looking at at least two different populations of objects right. that are maybe related in some way, but they, the mechanism seems to be a little different, or at least the observations seem to they, Yeah, they, they could be completely different. Um, you know, this, the most straightforward explanation for two populations would be the one is from a cataclysmic source that will just by definition never repeat again because it's disrupted. It's, it's mm -hmm. uh, um, annihilated itself. And the other one could be something... Um, what, like a, a highly magnetized neutron star, what we call a magnetar, which is known to give um, bright radio flares um, at random times. Yeah, so I see that I see in the literature. Now I'm not super up on the literature for FRBs. It's not necessarily my avenue of, of work, but I see mm -hmm. that this year in particular has been a, a hot year for them. And I I saw that there's several sort of what I would guess I would consider on the outside looking in to be well put together models that that can come up with a mechanism for why FRBs are FRBs or what mm -hmm. the, the central engine must be. Can you speak to what the, what the, you know, common held belief in the community is maybe the top, maybe there's not one single one, maybe there's a few, but what, what are the main ideas about what these things could be? Well, I think for the repeating ones, um, we know that they're in our own Milky Way around the central supermassive black hole, we know that there's a magnetar, an extremely highly magnetized neutron star, mm -hmm. and we know that it emits radio pulses. Um, and so for the original repeating FRB that was found at Arecibo and has been localized and so on, that we can see that that is coincident um, with an active galactic nucleus where the implication is that there's a supermassive black hole at the center of that galaxy. Um, so kind of the, the simple-minded idea for that is then that you've just got one of these magnetars that's just even more um, energetic than the one in our Milky Way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's able, it's able to emit such bright bursts that we can, we can see them from our, our remote location here. And so that's, that's the sort of um, simple picture that people are now getting into the details of and trying to, like in a, in a few years' time, as we start to map out the FRBs uh, on the sky, and in particular as we're able to locate them um, with um, what we call host galaxies, mm -hmm. we'll be able to say, oh, does it, does it come from the center of the galaxy or is it in the outskirts? Um, and depending on its location, well, give us clues as to what the source could be. It could be, for instance, that the, let's say, um, the non-repeating ones, if, if that's even a thing, 
uh, if they're coming from in spirals, they might be at a, a far in the outskirts mm-hmm. of their host galaxies uh, as opposed to at the center where the magnetars might be. Yeah. Um, you're going to come so to the what? Yeah. You're going to come to the realization that uh man, these these pulses seem to be coming from globular clusters. Uh what was that <laughs> what was that Brendan kid's name again? We should reach out to him. Maybe he's onto something. Well, we should we should think about this more offline. Yes, I think I think it's an interesting little idea. Yes, we can. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs> um so We'll switch gears now a, a tad bit into multi-messenger astrophysics because this is something that obviously I'm immersed in. This is essentially my field of study. Um, my right. my current you know academic life is me trying to model binary neutron stars, trying to simulate them. What happens when two neutron stars in spiral and they smash into one another? What is the EM spectrum like? What do they emit? Radio waves, X-rays, gamma rays, etc. And maybe. Maybe it'll lead back to FRBs somewhere down the line. Maybe <laughs> 77 years from now when I get my code to work. I don't know. Uh, but nevertheless, with the with the observation of the very first binary neutron star from LIGO, GW170817, the first binary neutron star, we opened up an entire new field, essentially. This field sort of existed, but for the most part, astronomers did this thing where they sort of stuck in their camps and the X-ray astronomers did the X-ray stuff, and the optical astronomers did their optical stuff, and the infrared people did their infrared stuff. But now we're at a point where, you know, we see a gravitational wave detection, and if it's determined to be a binary neutron star, then an alert goes out to, like, the entire academic community and says, hey, infrared astronomers, X-ray astronomers, gamma-ray astronomers, everyone, point your telescopes in this mm-hmm. region, see what you can find. And right. we, we now have a unification of, of all of the spectrum. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Is that being done in the FRB community? Yes, it is. Um, there are, we've got a protocol for alerts, and um, those are now reaching the stage where they're starting to um, – they're, they're mostly being done within a closed community. So a particular collaboration would have a telescope and let's say they find an FRB once every month. They will have a bunch of guys around um, the EM spectrum and they'll, they will be looking, looking for those events. And um, we have um, MOUs, Mem- Memoranda of Understanding with, um, with LIGO. So retroactively we'll um, give them the radio times and they can look in the mm-hmm. in the LIGO data. So those things are happening. Uh, we're not quite at this the level uh, where that LIGO has got to recently where it's now just releasing them openly to anyone. Mm-hmm. I think that that will change though with with chime uh, as the as the rates get higher that we'll just be overwhelmed with these with these things um, over the next few years but that, that's going to be very exciting because it I think there's there's never going to be a shortage of astronomers. Uh, well, there's never going to be a shortage of things to do for astronomers who have resources to to point in those directions. Um, so, potentially, that you know, with Chime, it's potentially finding dozens of these things per day. So, there's always going to be something to look at. So, there's not going to be like this mad rush towards a single location in the sky. Um, so, it's it's going to be incredibly exciting, I think. I see. I, in my mind, I would think that the repeating FRBs would be the important ones to really try to do this multi-messenger thing with, because you yeah. you can. I imagine 
you can localize them much more. Yeah, that's right. And so, and so yes. Have we had any success in doing Has there been anyone who's <clears throat> been able to get any additional emissions from, from an FRB, maybe say X-ray emissions, gamma ray, et cetera? So there have been um, detections reported, uh, very low significance detections of, of gamma rays from a couple of FRBs, um, not high enough to be really um, firmly established. But for the repeating ones, you know, that was the whole um, development that led to the um, to the high high angular resolution observations that pinpointed their position. Mm -hmm. So once we knew their source repeated, we would just I say we in the very <laughs> loose sense astronomers mm -hmm. would point would point the VLA uh, in that position, and eventually they they saw them and, and were able to pinpoint the pulses. Um, so that is being done. Um, in that case, you're not looking for emission that's coming out promptly. At the, you know. That's that's with the FRB so much. You're you're trying to find the host galaxy, right. which is in the background. So that's that's an important aspect. Um, and so I think um, and actually a new a new development that's coming online now that I just um, think about it uh, in South Africa. There's a telescope called Meerkat, mm -hmm. um, which is uh, a network of 64 um, small uh, radio dishes that is um, sufficiently dispersed such that they can form uh, an interferometer. And so not only do they have the field of view from these small dishes, but they have the angular resolution. And I think they're going to be starting to, to pinpoint a lot of these, um, not at the rate of dozens per day, but, you know, dozens per year, perhaps, something like that. Yeah, um, you just made me realize a dynamic that maybe I wasn't considering enough, which is that, you know, if these are compact objects, the the central problem with doing multi-messenger astrophysics with them is that they are very far away, right? And so mm -hmm. you would have a, a you would be in a situation where you would essentially be using multi-messenger astrophysics to pinpoint the galaxy less than you would be in a situation where you're actually trying to observe the object because you likely wouldn't be able to see it. Maybe I'm wrong, but you likely wouldn't be able to see it. Yeah, that's right. You wouldn't see the object itself, but you could, for instance, see um, other other emissions that are related to the energetics after the uh, explosion. Let's say, right? Um, you know, as uh, as energy is deposited in, into the local medium around the burst site, um, that might um, lead to uh, a significant shocking of the material uh, and. Um, for instance, give you um, radio waves that are, that are persistent over long long periods of time, mm -hmm. as are seen in, around gamma ray bursts. Um, so things like that. So yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily see the object itself. That's very unlikely, but uh, but the environment around it you would uh, be hoping to detect. I mean, it's it's a really interesting question though as to whether we will ever observe the you know that particular facet of it um because mm -hmm. it, it's just so challenging yeah i would think that when you start making many detections thousands mm -hmm. thousands a year um and then you can actually develop a pipeline for multi-messenger observations like a real pipeline like sending it out to the community mm -hmm. um, right then because you know there's this weird thing that happens with telescopes is there's a ton of them right there's a lot of telescopes in every mm -hmm. wave band Right, in right. every EM spectrum, 
looking at so many different parts of the sky at one time. Someone should make a map. So someone listening out there, you should make a map of every telescope right now and where it's pointing and what fractional percentage of the sky we're covering in total. That would be an interesting map to mm -hmm. see. Uh, but the point is, you know, if the success of, of multi-messenger astrophysics and gravitational wave observatories isn't just that, you know, all the astronomers get together and point their telescopes at the same place, but it's that the people that already have their telescopes pointed in that direction know that they should look for something special in their data. You know, because maybe they're not looking for a neutron star merging. Right. They're looking for hydrogen mapping or something, you know, right, something right. of that sort. So that's another benefit is that, you know, people, while they might not want to take away from their own observations, they say, well, hell, we're already pointing in that direction of the sky. So let's look for special things in our data and see if we can find it. And I think FRB research can benefit from that, too, because that is, after all, the inception of FRB. Uh, right. studies is, right. is finding something when you weren't looking right. for it. So that's right. I would love mm -hmm. to see that pipeline be developed. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, I, th I think we're getting pretty close to it now. Uh, so yeah, I, I would, I would think in a year from now in, in 2020, um, we'll be in an era where we'll, uh, we as a community will know a lot more about what's happening from Chime and how we can get involved with that. Mm hmm. Yeah. It is so crazy to hear you say, in a year from now, in 2020, I feel so old and just, <laughs> man, I'm only 24 and I feel ancient. Uh, <laughs> now I'm starting to understand when, like, my my mom says she feels old. I'm st it's starting to sink in. I get it. A year from now, I wish I was 24 again. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, after our first uh, session, I got... A ton of emails. I generally get some emails after every episode. People liked the episode. They didn't like it. They hate me. They hate the person I interviewed. Yeah. You know how the internet is, right? Um, sure. Last time I got a lot of emails from people. And, and I subsequently went on a... I, I get invited to be in your seat sometimes. Uh -huh. um, and I, I try to limit these things to like once a month. I do one or two a month. Um, and FRBs was one thing I discussed before. Um, just from a, a base, you know, not talking yeah, like, yeah, like sure. you are, but, uh, you know, and that was all the questions. All the questions were aliens. Could they be aliens? Right, are they? Right. How do we know they're not aliens? What if they're aliens? You right. know, this sort of thing. Right. How much of this do you get? Uh, not much anymore, actually. It's like, you know, once every, once every few months, something like that. The, Init the, initially, but it was a lot more. I yeah. was going to say the important word there is anymore. What was it like? At first. <laughs> it w it really wasn't that bad even even back then it was um, it was just just a few in, a few inquiries to be honest mm -hmm. and so yeah and it was just it was I welcome that and it's just interesting to, to have that discussion yeah I welcome um, it too actually I, yeah, I like it yeah. here's one thing that amazed me um, there was a particular person and I I don't know their name I wouldn't say it if I knew it yeah who commented on the YouTube video and and. I get I get emails when people leave comments. Uh, every like ten comments, I'll get an email saying, "Here's a summary of comments." Well, all of a sudden, I get like four comments or, or four emails, which means someone left forty comments, and it was all one person, and they were like spamming the video, going crazy, leaving <laughs> co comments like paragraphs of text, and you know it was mildly offensive, and so the spam filter caught it and didn't even allow it to be displayed. But right. I I looked into what this person was saying, and they had a website dedicated to this and i went on their website made sure it was safe first 
Gotta be careful. Mm -hmm. Went on their website and they're doing what I would classify as real science. They're doing a real scientific inquiry. They have a website devoted to it. They're doing real noise analysis, real data analysis with real FRB data. And this Hmm. person, like, their conclusion, the problem with their scientific method is that they already have their conclusion. Their conclusion is that FRBs are aliens. Um, But they're doing what I would consider to be decent work all on their own. They don't, they're not at a university or anything like that. And, you know, this person eventually apologized to me and, and essentially told me that they're crazy. They're schizophrenic. Um, but I wonder like, man, how many great scientists are, are out there and they just never got introduced into the field and how many great scientists are out there that could be doing real FRB research Mm -hmm. right now but are instead putting all of their effort into trying to prove the existence of aliens. And it, it makes me, when I, when I see it, when, especially a case like that, like, it just makes me a little bit sad. It makes me sad because this person is clearly like an intelligent, high-achieving mm-hmm. person. And right, if given right. the right tools, they could do real science. They could do right. good science. They're clearly right. smart, smarter than me probably. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I just was wondering, you know, from your standpoint, how do you perceive when you get these sorts of things? Um, do you try to educate? Do you? Uh, yeah, I, I try to have a conversation as best I can, and usually it's pretty, um, it's pretty civil. Uh, like occasionally, I, I've had people like get on my case as to um, not not really from the alien perspective. It's like, why are you taking the credit for the discovery? It should have been, you know, it should have been David. It should have been the Narkovic verse. You know. You, you so and so, and all this. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then I explained to them, you know, how it, how it works. That I, you know, I wasn't actively trying to do that. And um, there's this, there's a sort of mentorship role that goes into the, into the whole process. And uh, yeah, so, so that, that's interesting. Yes. You kind of try to educate the public about how, how science works. Yeah, I also, on a practical I, level. I don't think you coined the term Lormerverse, did you? Oh no, no. No. So it's you I know, very I I try to avoid using it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I don't want people to think like, wow, this guy's so full of himself. He tries yeah, yeah. he he tried naming an astronomical object after right, himself. Right. No. Um so yeah. But that's always a, a weird thing, right? Because for people who don't know, it was an it was an undergraduate working with you who actually yeah. like sort of made saw the the Blip for the first time, right? And he came he, rushing. He to made you the and, discovery, yeah, yeah. Right. And he was like, "Hey, Duncan, what, what's right? Let's look into this." Um, now, this is a weird thing in all of science because there's always a problem of of credibility. You know, who gets credit for for what thing? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, the classic case, and maybe the most disturbing, is the Jocelyn Bell case. Right. The case of her being a graduate student and discovering the first pulsar, and and her advisor winning a Nobel Prize for it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. now I would hope that if I was in that position, I would say, well, wait a minute. We, you know, I know you want to give me the Nobel prize, but we got to include Jocelyn in it too. You know, I would hope right, I would, right. I would, you know, have that situation, but she was very humble about it. She was incredibly humble, maybe too humble for my liking. She was like, yeah, we, you know, I was a graduate student, blah, blah, blah. Um, and that, that sort of, you know, narrative, but it, right. it, it really is. It's an interesting question of, of, you know, who gets credit for stuff and and there's certain times in the academic community where i can understand people being justifiably mad um yeah it, yeah there is I mean, there's there's like 
part of it is like the advisor, whoever is, whoever is setting up that experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a tip of the iceberg thing. They will have been working for many years yes. to, you know, to de- develop software and do the proposals and whatnot. And then, the, you know, the student will come along at the last minute and make the discovery. Mm-hmm. You know, but both of them are equally uh, significant in, in the discovery. But um, I think it's... I think it's important to recognize both of them, but yes. uh, the, stu- the student is often a transient, no pun intended, and mm-hmm. they will move move on. David has left the field. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I tried to, to get him to, to stick around, but you know his his passions were elsewhere. Right. Um, and it's just yeah, it's just an interesting sort of human element to the whole thing. But I think it, yeah, the the pulsar one could have been handled a lot better than it was. You know, Hewish and Ryle were given the. The, the prize for their contributions to radio astronomy in, in, in a sort of broader context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see, um, you can see how that can be misconstrued. Uh, you know, Jocelyn is, is always very, very rational about it. And uh, she's, as she says herself, she's won just about every other, other prize and has done very well from her discovery. Um, so yep. she's, and yeah. I think it's wonderful that the recent um, breakthrough prize that she got, Yes, and how she's putting that back into the community. So, yeah, she donated it all. Yeah, right, um, which right. is just astounding. I talked to yeah. Ray Weiss on here as well, uh-huh. Nobel laureate Ray Weiss, right. and he was saying that he put back all his Nobel money and he uses it to fund grad students, which I thought was incredible. It's brilliant. And yeah. rather yeah. than you know making them apply for fellowships if they don't want to do that sort of thing and they just want to do work, then they have that outlet and. Mm-hmm. That like I love I, I love seeing stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right, I, I love it so much. But yeah, credibility. You know, in a team sport, in any team sport, which science certainly is, credibility is always going to be like a, a, a something that's discussed the same way that an MVP of the NBA finals will be. You know, maybe a heated debate like who did the most right. work, who you know, right. that sort of thing. Um, I guess the important point is you want your team to win and. In this case, your team is astronomers and the field of astronomy. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and so as long as your team is winning and you're not explicitly losing, being taken advantage of, then then I think we're moving in the correct direction. Right. I agree. Yes. So you're a musician, Duncan Lorimer. And mm-hmm. this is, is fascinating to me because I want to talk to you about, were you a musician when you were in graduate school? Uh, yes, I was, but uh, nowhere near at the level of intensity that I am now. Mm. So I, I'm curious, like, what was the work-life balance? What was, how was that looked at when you were a, a PhD student? I had a, a, a former professor of mine on last week, Dr. David mm-hmm. Fisher, and he's, he's um, not to be rude, and he wouldn't mind this. He's an older gentleman, okay? He's, yeah. he, he got his PhD a long time ago. Uh, and he was talking about how in, in his day, you know, it was like when you were in getting your PhD, you did nothing else. Like it, it was, it, if you tried doing anything else, you would be looked down upon in his department. Like mm-hmm. you spent mm-hmm. all of your waking hours, all of your effort on this right. one thing and you get it done and you do it. Right. Right. Was, the, did you have a similar experience? Yes. <laughs> um, you know, my, for me, you know, I as I look back over the, I just turned fifty a few months ago, um, and so as I look back over the years, uh, different phases of my life, I've been intensely 
preoccupied with different things. And so when I was a graduate student, all I thought about really was pulsars. You know, I, I played the I played the guitar in my bedroom in my spare time, but I didn't do anything anything with it. I'd actually at that point I'd given up um, on mu- on thinking about music as a as a career. I, I just got into astronomy, and that was what I was focused on doing. And you know, I believe that you know on your on your way to getting a career whatever it is there, there has to be moments like that where you're you're really intense intensely focused on it just just to get to a certain level yeah. that will open opportunities for you later on mm-hmm. yeah yeah i i i agree i agree completely and so like how do you see now that you're you're older and and you do have mm-hmm. this sort of uh, we can call it a career i guess music career or, or real passion for it, at least. Yeah. And, you know, uh-huh. you obviously put a lot of time into it. You yeah. know, do, do you ever think back and regret throwing it away while you were a, a PhD student? Do you wish you would have a lot of time for that? Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't regret anything that I've done in astronomy. Uh, that's That's been a, you know, there's been a lot of really amazing memories and developments in there. But I, part of me does does wish that I was... 24 again or whatever it was mm-hmm. um, and because I, I can see now uh, what it would take to um, to get into the music uh, in, into the into the music business at the level of which that I'm interested in right now mm-hmm. and I, I and I'd actually convinced myself that it wasn't possible back then I, I said I'm, I'm just not good enough to do this I, I no matter how many hours I practice I'm not going to get it uh, and I don't think that's uh, that was an incorrect uh, conclusion. Yes, yes, it was. <laughs> I will, I'll never tell you you're wrong on anything in, in the field of astronomy. You're my superior in that regard. Uh, but in this yeah. philosophical case, I'll tell you, you could have been great. <laughs> you still can. You still can. You still can. But yeah. Anyway, uh, you know, his academia has had this, you know, historical. Con- as, I guess it's not just acad. I, it's not all of academia actually. It's particularly rampant in the physical sciences i think um and uh, the reason it's particularly rampant in the physical sciences i think is because you get paid as a phd student so there's like an added um pressure on you to perform uh but the the pressure is that you need to perform you know at at the best of your ability for as many hours as is Mm -hmm. possible yeah um and do you see that fading do you see it still just as strong i see i'll tell you how i see it and then you can comment yeah. I see that it is still there, but it is necessarily hidden. It's hidden because people in academia don't want to tell you that that's the the case. Um, but but again, it varies based on where you're at and and mm-hmm. who you're with. So what what? How do you perceive this change? Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I, back in the at the time when I was a student and looking around my peers, we were all kind of the same. We we were just like so focused and. We'd we'd work ridiculous numbers of hours. In in our case, we were like out in the countryside. There wasn't we weren't in the city, so there wasn't much else to do. Right. <laughs> to be fair, so um, and I look around now. There are still those students who are doing that. Uh, it seems to me, you know, maybe I'm just skeptical in my old age. There's, there's a there's a broader spectrum of students. There's a, there are some students that are much more like nine to five. Uh, they they treat it like that. Um, and I think that's fine too. I, um, I think of myself as well, certainly back then I was very inefficient. 
like I would spend hours doing things and it took me a while to sort of build up my uh, level of scholarship that it, I wasn't just wasting my time. Mm-hmm. I kind of like practicing guitar. I kind of it took me a while to, to figure out how to do it right. Um, That's the so, phase I'm at. That, I'm in the practice yeah, phase. Yes. And, I, I, and I learned that skill from my own advisor, Andrew Lyne. Uh, he's a professor at University of Manchester, and he was just ruthlessly efficient. He would, you, you, and he's he's still very active today, although he's retired. But he's just, um, you would sit down with him, uh, and the meetings would would go on for an hour or so, and he would be, um, he would just stop uh, saying anything. He would, and he would just look out the window, and you think, why well, is he is he just ignoring me, or is it, he, he was he was thinking about the particular question. Mm-hmm. For maybe five minutes, and then he would, and then he would scribble, start scribbling stuff down, and he would explain to you what his thought process was, and uh, kind of bring you into it. Because you know, back then certainly I was, you know, there were so many things I had to had to learn, and so I would leave the office with a sheet of paper mm-hmm. uh, that had, um, the, you know, this thought process on it, and that would be kind of my roadmap as to how to proceed. I was, it was really, uh, it was really insightful, and just just watching him go through that process and. How little time he wasted, uh, I thought was really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. That it, it. See that that's how I try to like. That's how I try to craft my day because obviously this thing takes effort, it takes right. work, yeah, it takes imagine, time. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I realize we're doing science. We need to get shit done. We can't. I can't waste time. So you know, I try to craft that ruthless efficiency um, mm-hmm. as well. And it's a, mm-hmm. a learned skill. It's a, it's an interesting skill that is not ingrained in. I don't think it's in humans. You know, I was gonna say Americans, but I, I changed that. I don't think yeah. it's a human quality. I don't think that being efficient for eighteen hours a day is a human quality. Yeah, particularly. I mean, my dad always used to say that you know, youth is wasted on the young, and uh, <laughs> I think it's something that as you get older, That's you, a good you, you're, you're just be- <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether he came up with it or not, but um, as you get older, you, you, you just become more cognizant of the finite time that you have. And so I think you just become more efficient that, that way. But you, you still have to work at it. Um, I certainly see in my kids, you know, they're, um, you know, they're in the, coming into their teenage years now and they're just, you know, they're focused on different things and it's fun to watch them. But I just like, oh, I wish I was a kid again. And I, but with the knowledge that I had, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd be I'd be devoting my time to other things. But I think you, but I think as a kid, you've actually got to have uh, a different way of looking at it. So I, I'm probably just overthinking yes. it. Well, it's, <laughs> yeah. Well, I I guess it's you know, it's those experiences that that make you have a productive 30s or a productive 40s or a productive yeah, 50s. Right, uh, right. You know, I I could look back and say that. You know, my between the ages of like 11 and 16, my years were literally wasted. I mean, there was very little productivity that came out of those years, mm-hmm. but they really influenced in some hidden way the person I am now. So, right. you know, it's 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 a That's weird right. situation. Yeah. Um, And that interests me in the confines of science in connection with the Pulsar Search Laboratory, which mm-hmm. would you like to say a few words about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so that's uh, that was something that also began around the same time as FRBs um, back in 2006. Um, and so Maura McLaughlin, my wife, and I uh, got together with um, a public outreach uh, person at Green Bank, who you know, Sue Ann Heatherly, mm-hmm. um, 
who uh, was really passionate about this idea. It was really her um, brainchild about getting high school kids to do in, to do radio astronomy, and in this particular case, to get involved in pulsar searches. Um, and so she really encouraged us to to make our data accessible and to, to come up with tutorials and a and a framework for teaching teaching the kids. And so what we do, uh, we've done over the past decade, and um, we get the we get about anywhere between 30 and 50 students uh, to Green Bank uh, here in West Virginia, the Green Bank Observatory, uh, for a week, sometimes two, uh, with their teachers. And we teach them just enough physics and astronomy to be dangerous uh, and enough, enough pulsar astronomy to know what they're looking for. And then we let them go back to their schools over the academic year and just have at it. They, they look at the data from the telescope. Nobody else looks at it. No professional astronomers. Now, do you yeah. see a, a passion in those kids that you don't even see in some of your professional colleagues? Or um, your, maybe, maybe, I don't want to put colleagues in the box. <laughs> we'll say maybe, you know, other people in the field. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, um, there's a, with the, with the high school students that were coming in, some of them are really not that interested and some of them are just super into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really interesting to watch that whole dynamic. Um, and yeah, some of the, the the passionate ones, they're they. I'm just thinking, you know, we've got we've got enough of a baseline now that we've had students come through the undergraduate program here, and some of them are, are still doing astronomy, but the majority of them have gone off and been successful at other things, and so they've taken they've used that spark to get excited about you know some sort of fundamental research question, and then just carried that off to their own uh, area. Which I think has really, really been fun. Yeah, yeah, I think that the like the process of doing research is just an important experience. You know, I wouldn't even call it a skill because I'm not even sure like what skill you acquire. You acquire mm-hmm. like reasoning, and that's a pretty abstract skill to to have. But it's right. just an important experience to have in your life. I yeah. I would love to see something like what you do. You know actually adapted into school systems in general mm-hmm. like not yeah. for kids to have to sign up and and travel right, and right. get involved in this but for that to actually be like an availability for them that that's something that mm-hmm. I, maybe i'll pioneer in my life but yeah. you know because i i think about we talked about this this youtube comic guy and he, and he's just a, a an example a microcosm uh he represents to me you know so much of science communication, science communicators, they try to do what I would call converting. They try to, mm-hmm. you know, preach to people who, who either are already scientifically minded, which is great because then you educate them. But then they also try to do a conversion. So, like, you know, they spend so much effort trying to convert people who think climate change isn't happening or convert people who think that the earth is flat. Um, and not enough time actually educating at the baseline. You know, teaching kids about science in, right. in ways like getting them involved in research. Right. And I think that you can combat the problem of having people deny science by starting younger and actually mm-hmm. getting kids involved in, in you know, a process that, that involves reasoning. Because, you know, in the case of this YouTube comic guy, he really could have been a great scientist. You can tell. And maybe he was stricken with some mental illness that that doesn't have that in the cards for him. But, you know, I think about my own life and it's a, it's a miracle 
that I am where I'm at today because it was never an option for me. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. I didn't have an astronomy right. class in high school. I, the All most right. physics we did in my high school was Newton's laws, Newton's three laws, right. and that's it. Right. We stopped there. So it's not even that you know a region like central Pennsylvania can't produce good scientists. It's that kids don't even know science is an option. Right. And that's the thing that literally it sickens me and it, it makes me just sad. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I tried reaching out to my school many times, you know, a dozen times trying to get them involved right. in the Pulsar Search Collaboratory. And I never even got a response. So, wow. you know, you see yeah. the 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 level of apathy that mm-hmm. I think exists in some of these regions. And it, it yeah. makes me sad. And you know, I've that heard of that, too. Virginia. Yeah. Right. A friend of mine moved here recently from Pennsylvania and he was, he was a teacher there. And yeah, he just wasn't allowed to participate in this program. Um, you know, his school district just forbid it. It's, I don't understand why. I don't understand it. I have no explanation. It, it is beyond my comprehension. Right. I ju- but, yeah. you know, I think that's where you, you have to end based off of your lack of words. I'd say it's probably beyond yours. Uh, it is. Yeah, it, it needs. The thing is, it needs a lot of resources pumped into it. So, I mean, you, you could tr- you could think about a program where you took a particular county and you went into a county and, tr- and tried to instigate this, let's say, at the middle school level mm-hmm. um, just to catch the kids early, I think, which is really important. We, we take some middle schoolers in our program. But, but just thinking about what that would entail yeah, it's just like it's a huge operation just for even just for one county. Yes, it's true. It uh, is. You know, you know what I would love to see is for kids to sit in classes less, and for kids to what an ideal. I think about like my my brain as a tenth grader, and I think that my ideal situation would have been sitting less in classes and getting more like hands on work. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. yes, there's things like uh, vocational technology. You know, like go learn how to you know they they have these weird <clears throat> vocations like learning how to weld you know things that you would go to a trade school for but they don't have any vocational training for people who want to be a biologist right. or a chemist right. or a right. physicist uh, i would love to see things like that adapted um, so how do you, i was going to say how do you counter the argument that you must get when people say well you know you're a phd student at a at a national program now um, you succeeded in spite of this why why should we change the system? I think it's a population problem. I think that, you know, there – you see me and and the same way that you see an athlete who maybe is in the NFL but you say, oh, he grew up in the Bronx. He, his mom was a crackhead, you know, and, and he had, n- you know, no chance but somehow he made it out. Well, you don't think about the 3,000 kids who didn't, right? Mm-hmm. You don't think about the, the 5,000 kids who lived – in the same, you know, region of, of Pennsylvania as I did, who were the same age as me, who didn't make it anywhere, you know? And so yeah. it's, you, that's one of the, the issues actually is that, you know, you see, you see people climb out of poverty. And so you, you mm-hmm. convince yourself that it's possible. Um, and it is possible. I'm not right. saying it's impossible. It's certainly possible. Uh, but, but it's improbable to expect people to be able to, right? Because sure. the, the climb is, is, is a tough climb. Yeah, um, it is. And it's something that, that most people, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go as far as to say people are incapable of it. I would say people don't know how to approach it. 
They don't mm-hmm. even know the steps to the to the to the game. They don't know right, if it wasn't right. for my wife, whom I uh, you know knew in high school and who got out of this and then wanted to go to college. I wouldn't even have known like how do I even apply to a college? Like what what does that right, even entail? Right. How do I pay the fee? What what do I do? Right, you know? right. Um, yeah. And so you have to have. I'm a situation where things aligned for me, and in such a way that that allowed this to happen. But there's hundreds of kids who didn't. You know, I think about when I was 12 years old, and you know, I, I talk about this on the podcast not to make myself seem, you know, hard or tough, but to, to educate because I get people who reach out to me about this stuff, and and they like that I talk about this. But I think about when I was 12 years old, and and I was taking opioids, and I was um, drinking, and and smoking weed, and you know, whatever, and Obviously, you do that with your friends, your friends who are in a similar situation to you, who are in shitty households or whatnot, um, and and you find a community there. And even though you're destroying yourselves, you're destroying yourselves together. And so you feel mm-hmm. you feel like you actually have people around you, which to most kids is like amazing. From where I come from, right. you know, wow, I actually have a support system. Even though they're right. supporting me to take a Percocet, even though they're right. supporting me to take heroin, they're still supporting me. They're here for me. You know, right? And so I think about those kids, and we were all interested in science. I remember a situation like this where we were laying on a coal bank because I'm in, I'm from the coal region. Okay, so that's what you do—you lay on coal banks. And it was nighttime, and we were staring at the stars, very similar to the situation you mentioned on your bed, right? Yeah. And we're staring at the stars, and I could see how it would be really easy to go the route of the guy commenting on YouTube. Because that's the, the people my friends at the time mm-hmm. have become. They become right. the person who was so interested in the science and in the scientific method and in space, but they have no outlet to explore that. So instead, they have to go the underground route. And the underground mm-hmm. route is like very quick answers, you know, not using Occam's razor, coming up with, with nonsense. Right. But th- the intuition is there. Like the scientific intuition still exists in your head, mm-hmm. you just don't. Right. Have, you just don't have the outlet to, to allow it to come out. So, right. yeah, I, to answer your question in a very roundabout way, it's literally just a population problem. You know, right. Um, right. it's not. You know, the success of some people is not indicative that everyone has equal opportunities to succeed. Although I would say America is probably the best place to have equal opportunity to succeed, maybe on the planet right now. America might be the, the the best place, but still, there's you know there's yeah. droves, millions of kids, specifically in that in that tri-state area, mm-hmm. or in the Pennsylvania, New York, right. New Jersey, right. West Virginia, rural right. communities that are are and Kentucky, Alabama, right, all right. those places, yeah, um, who just don't have the resources, you know, and and, mm-hmm. and I don't know the solution, and I don't know if it's an easy solution, and I think that's why it hasn't been solved yet because people don't yeah. want to look at it, right, right. Yeah. So uh it's it's a a somber thing but you yeah. know I would like to we're doing, you know, we're doing our bit and we you know we've we've talked about scaling it up to the to the national level and you know we've expanded to many multiple states but it really is it's we we do it almost in our spare time. Now mm-hmm. Sue Ann, you know that's part of her mission but you know you know we're we're devoting um um you know our our sort of spare cycles to this but you, you could see how it would to really do it in a, in a more vigorous level you just you need several full-time positions yeah do you know what sue ann's like in where this idea came from why she decided this was a good idea 
was uh-huh. there some factor? I don't want you to speak for her, but I, I don't know. Yeah, if you know. I, a friend of hers, uh, a teacher friend of hers in Charleston, you know, they they got talking about it one one time, and he, I think he convinced her of it actually that you know they should really use the data from the observatory more, uh, you know, at, at a hands-on level rather than just making exhibits and and uh, giving tours and, and whatnot. So yeah, I think it's it's brilliant. It is. Yeah. It's a, and I think that most places, you know, astronomy isn't the only place where data is lying around. Right. Most places right. could could involve students if they were willing to put forth the effort. Mm-hmm. And and I would I would love to see it. one of the things RIT, where I'm currently um, a, a student at, a graduate student, is doing this year is is their RU program is involving community college kids, mm-hmm. which I think is is you know something I haven't seen before. Maybe it's been going on for a while, but you know. That is a step in the right direction. You know, you, right. you have to find a way to to get at the communities <clears throat> that are struggling the most. Um, mm-hmm. You you have to find a way. That's mm-hmm. imperative. And right. that and you know one of the things that that I hate is when we say okay, well we have a finite number of resources. So if we get at the communities that need people, then well, then we're going to be leaving out kids who are, you know, for they shouldn't be victimized just for growing up in a good household. Mm-hmm. You know, they shouldn't have opportunities taken away from them because they're in a good household. So it, it's such a tough trade-off because you're literally put in a funding situation where you have to sacrifice kids over one another. Right. That, and that is a tough situation. And yeah, and the and the organizations need to value that. So they, they you know, they literally need to say, okay, we're going to have a full-time person to to yeah. administer this program because that's what it takes, really. Mm-hmm. But yes, I, th- I think it's got to start with school. It's got to start with school. Right. You have to motivate kids in school, and if you mm-hmm. can't do that, then you're the not. Middle school is a great place to start. Yes, middle school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I try to draw as much of my personal experience as possible, and 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 I, th- I think that that would have been beneficial to me to have that opportunity. You know, I might be further along in my mm-hmm. in my career than I am right now. So I don't know. But it's, like, again, it's like those missing FRBs, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. But with that being said, I I thank you for being here, Duncan Lorimer. I think this is probably a good place to, to call it quits unless you have something else you want to talk about. No, it's been my pleasure to, to talk to you. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. So um, don't hang up, Duncan, but we're, we're, we're done here, people. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please leave a comment. Tell me what you thought. Did you did you like Duncan? Did you think it was a good interview? What do you think? What do you think about FRBs? Do you have any ideas? Do you have any um, suggestions for what they might be? What about school? Do you think it needs to be improved? Drop a comment. Okay. If you liked it, review. Hit hit it with a like. Whatever. Whatever platform you're on. You know. Do the thing that you do to show support. And with that being said. We're going to get out of here with one of these brand new Duncan Lorimer tracks that were just released recently. And and we're just going to we're just going to coast out, you know?
。